kingdom come. Let the worship that exists around your throne be here, found here in our own lives, just as it is in heaven. Let us see you catching the same glimpse that the angels see. Let the response be worship and adoration. You being loved and proclaimed and seen as good. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So, uh, we are going to be uh, leaving the country tomorrow morning, we being uh, my wife, my kids, and I, going to South Africa, and we will dearly miss the beloved people of Border City Church while we are gone, um, but we're going to be prayed out, kind of sent uh, later on, and you guys obviously will take very much part of, of that praying with us, please, uh, praying for us as we go. We'll talk a little bit more of that in, in a couple minutes, but I, what we're going to be doing right now, today, is we're going to be talking about Jesus, <laughs> and um, if I could just share heart to kind of introduce <laughs> the subject matter of Jesus, um, if you look with me to John chapter 3, Jesus, we're wanting to proclaim Jesus and to see him as his followers, as his church, to see him, to rightly portray him. Let me tell you now, there is no subject matter in the church, in the way of preaching, that would in any way rival the subject matter of Jesus and seeing him. And truly, there's something about the, the Paul the Apostle called it the foolishness of preaching, <laughs> but there's something about the heavenly value of the proclamation of Jesus that our eyes are opened up, the eyes of our heart to see him as he really is, and thus, as a result, to understand, to relate to him as he really is. You see, a lot of us sometimes can have a mixed up vision of who Jesus is or a misunderstanding and relate to him as a consequence according to that which he is not. And so we want Jesus to be proclaimed accurately. And if you look with me in John chapter 3, uh, as to the reason for that, this famous scripture, we all know John 3.16, or at least so many of us have heard it so many times, but let's look two verses back, starting in John chapter 14, to understand the context. Uh, Jesus says some very interesting things here, and I just want to explain it briefly. He's talking to this guy named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like a scribe. He's like supposed to be an expert in the Jewish law, to know everything having to do with the Word of God, and so he, that's the way he looks, and he kind of like privately goes over to Jesus when no one else is looking, because he doesn't want people to know, like, he doesn't kind of understand what's going on here, and he's like asking Jesus, how, like, how do we get the kingdom of God? And Jesus takes the opportunity to say some things that he kind of knows Nicodemus is not going to understand. He starts talking about how uh, you would have to be uh, born again to see and enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Nicodemus is like, yeah, well, you know, I'm, of course, I, I know. What do you, what do you mean? And uh, do I have to go back into my mom? And that's like a disgusting idea. And, and, um, and then Jesus says this. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So just want to touch on 
this concept as we're getting into what we're talking about today and over the next two weeks. Um, while I'm gone, I'm going to tag team this morning with our beloved Anna, uh, who's going to come and kind of speak on what I'm not speaking on today with regards to Jesus. And then we're going to have Mickey, or she's going to share next week, and then Mickey's going to share some things, all having to do with Jesus and how that impacts our life here on earth. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So what's, what's Jesus talking about here? If you don't know, in the, book of Numbers, in, the, in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel left Egypt, right? Moses led them out of Egypt into a promised land, but they had to go through the wilderness. While they were in the wilderness, they're eating manna every day. And things are difficult. Things aren't fun. And this is not a land flowing with milk and honey like they had been promised. And so they start to complain against Moses and they start to even complain against God. And the anger of God is kindled and God sends serpents into the camp. And those serpents begin to bite some and some actually die. Fiery serpents, the the Bible describes them. And so once this starts to happen, they start to reconsider their attitude. And they say... Uh, back to Moses, forgive us, we repent, forgive us for dishonoring you, pray to the Lord for us that he would forgive us, and Moses prays to the Lord, and, Mo- and God in that place tells Moses, raise up, make a, a serpent out of bronze, and place him up on a pole in the middle of the camp, and whenever a fiery serpent should bite somebody, if they would look up at that bronze serpent, they're going to be healed. And that was what began to happen. They would, as long as they looked up at that serpent, that bronze serpent on a pole, they would be healed. Let's read this again. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now are you understanding? Jesus was that one lifted up on a pole to die. That people would see him, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the whole idea is that Jesus being seen, just as that serpent was seen, today, Jesus being seen as he actually is, is what brings healing to the human condition of everyone that we know, of the people of the city, and even to our own lives, even if we are already Christians. Us seeing him still heals. And for that purpose, we're wanting to proclaim who Jesus is, the foundation of everything else that we will believe, proclaim the truth of who he is so that we would be healed, but more important, or just as important, that we would become those who are able to cause other people to see Jesus as he really is. And so if you'll look with me in Philippians chapter 2, this is going to be kind of the key text for the next 13 minutes. I just want to talk about Jesus, the fact that he came, that he died, and that he rose again. And we're going to get into, in the future, about the fact that he's coming again and how all of that impacts us. But at the core of all of it, what does this mean about who he is? So you're with me. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says, I'm reading out of the NIV Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He came, he died, and he rose again and ascended. Okay, let's look at these, shall we? First of all, the fact that Jesus came tells us that he is with us. The fact that he came. Let's read that again, not the whole passage, but just the verses five through seven. He came. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, in other words, he was fully God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he was God. He had the highest rank in heaven. Last time I checked, heaven's probably a pretty cool place to be, right? We've got our friends, the Cruckers. They were just in Colorado. They went up three miles above sea level, I guess, something like that. Not even as close to high as the ranking of Jesus. And they, he wasn't even sunburned. He was loving it. Heaven, God, status of God, could have remained the highest, the highest, most privileged position, and chose to, rather than allow that to be something that is for his benefit, he emptied all of that and chose to become one of us and leave that place and come into the earth. What I'm getting at is Jesus, his very nature would prefer leaving that for himself in order to come. As in the earth had been separated through sin from God, and rather than allowing that disconnect to maintain, he was the one who bridged the gap between heaven and God and earth and man. He's the one who bridged by coming. He comes. He's not alien. He's not distant. He's not foreign. He's not out there. He comes. And so the, the concept is that he left heaven to pursue us uh, the fact that Jesus' posture, and I just hope that we can all take this into our hearts as far as how Jesus is in his very nature, his posture is to come to us. As in not leave us, he is with us. In fact, that's the very identity of Jesus according to Isaiah. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah, who hundreds of years before you were ever in children's church and you were taught all these nice things about Jesus and his parables and what he did and all that kind of stuff. Isaiah didn't know any of this. Hundreds of years before any of us knew about the Virgin Mary, all that kind of stuff, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 7.14, he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call, and you, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Anybody in here know what the word Emmanuel means? God with us. His, in other words, it shall call him, not that his name, literally, we know his name is Jesus. His name isn't Emmanuel, but the idea of being called such, his identity. If I called Mickey hip, <laughs> he's a, that's part of his identity. He's kind of a hip, cool guy. Jesus is God with us. The, his, at the core of who he is, he is with us. Now, let me explain a little bit about this. What about the tragedy that I'm walking through? Where's God in that? 
if he's so God and he's with us, what about that? Well, the reality is he is with us accessible in the tragedy. You don't walk through anything that he isn't, his posture isn't pursuing you. In other words, so as in Revelations, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. His posture is coming to you. We still let him in. Is that making sense? Because some of us get all messed up. Bad stuff happened. We had some bad stuff happen very recently to us. Where is God in that? Where we did all the right things. You know, we're doing all the right stuff. And how could this terrible thing happen to us? God is with us in that. And it's getting to see who he is that we are able to anchor our faith despite the circumstances. You are with me and I can turn to you and access your presence, your very real help in the middle of these circumstances. Hope that makes sense. So his posture, posture is, is toward us. He's with us. He's accessible. Let's go on to the fact that he died. I mean... <laughs> It's, we're skimming over these huge things, but I, I hope we can just anchor each of them a little bit further, a little bit more. The fact that he died. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. We're just reading this again. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In other words, he, he died. When he came, he didn't just empty himself like we said earlier and be willing to not just be God, but become fully man, lose all of his privileges as God, and live in this earth just like you and I have to, and fully depend upon God, even though he is God, depending on God the Father, just like you and I have to in this earth, so that we can't ever say, you don't really understand what it's like to be me. He fully became one of us, right? But not only did he do that, he also went to a cross while one of us to die on our behalf. Meaning, my friends, he absolutely loves us to the fullest extent. So Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this about his death, that even while, or God demonstrated his love, um, uh, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Let that sink in, because there are a lot of people who become Christians and then from that point feel like I've got to do right so that God can be good to me. I've got to make sure I'm not missing him. I've got to make sure I'm doing this everything right so that God can still love me and that's not the thing. In fact, not only is that not the thing, you can't get God to love you anymore if what we're saying is true. If Romans 5, 8 is true, that God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So let me just hoi, <laughs> that's a South African term, term, hoi. Let me toss out, see the South Africa, it's already coming back. <laughs> My soul is getting ready for where I'm about to go. Let me just toss out a couple ideas about what we just read. Number one, based on what we just said about him dying, number one is that he is good. Now, uh, now that may seem so cliche in church to say he's good, and we sing about it, no, 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 no me included, every single one of us, in times where perhaps maybe we wake up in the morning and we're going into prayer, there's a portion of our soul that forgets straight away that he is good. We can distance our heart from him. We can be afraid of drawing near to him. 
simply because that one thing, we forget that he is good. If Jesus actually did what we just said that he did for us, that he left heaven, became one of us, and from that place went to substitute me, himself for me, to take on God's wrath towards sin so that I wouldn't be punished, he would rather be punished, his heart towards us is always good. And if he is good, I can trust him. He's good. He's good. Isn't that good news? Now, here's the thing. He's God. He doesn't have to be good. And if he's God, I need to obey him no matter what, because he's God, I'm not. He wanted the gospel to be done in such a way, because by the way, who made up the rule that somebody had to pay the price for sin and, and blood had to be spilled? And who made up all those rules? God did. Why? So that he had a way to leverage the, the sin of man, the fall of man, to leverage it back around to where it could become the way that he could personally express to us he loves us boundlessly, could not love us anymore, some way that he could show, I will die for you. And not only will I die for you, I will give up my only son to have you. That is the reality of his heart. He's willing to leave everything to find me and to find you, and he's willing to spare every expense. He's willing to not spare, you know what I'm trying to say, any expense in order to have us. That's the reality of, of God. Number one, he's good. Number two, we cannot earn or gain his love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It is impossible, it is impossible to get him to love you anymore or to do anything to earn or gain his, his love. In fact, that's the, missing the whole idea. The whole idea is for us to, un, to receive and understand his love so that we will yield to his lordship, not because we're good and we're doing the right thing and blah, 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 but because we see him as the truly highest, best option that there is. The only option. Am I making sense? He's the only one who really loves me. He loves me more than I love me because I don't even really know how to love me and I don't have the power that he does. So he is, he, we cannot earn or gain his love. Thirdly, his love came before we responded. Before we repented, before we said, Jesus, I need salvation for my sins, before anything that we did, he came first. And I want you to know when you are in your mess that you created, or this mess that this earth has put on us, his posture is towards you and his heart has not stopped loving you because it isn't based on anything you've done or haven't done anyway. And then fourthly, and I love this, his love knows no bounds. He wanted it that way to, to have... It says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 5, Paul says this incredible thing to say, that he, he, God, made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? Jesus, who didn't know any sin, became sin so that God's wrath would fully come on Jesus so that we would become righteous before him through faith in him. That's, that's his posture towards us. His love is boundless. So lastly, and let's, let's, let's wrap it up here. He rose again, therefore he is able. 
if you'll follow me to the next two or three verses, verses 9 through 11, therefore God exalted him. Because he did all of this, went to this lowest place, it says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's the significance of the resurrection of Jesus? Is that nothing is able to hold him down. Everything that I've just expressed shows me that he loves me in a way that my heart so needs to know that I could possibly be loved. Because I know in my, the recesses of my heart there are things that make me unlovable. And to know that he loves me, that is wonderful. But the resurrection says not only does he love me, because that's only part of the necessary equation to be able to put all my trust in him. He has all power. That is, my friends, the truth of the resurrection, that if he loves me, and my faith response to him is to put my confidence in him, to, as the Bible says, believe in him. Not just believe things about him, right? To believe in him, as in you are now my Messiah, my leader, my Lord, my master. I follow you. I need to know that he doesn't just love me, he's got power. And in the context of the Lordship of Jesus, you never have to worry again, ever. Doesn't mean that you're not gonna worry. I was worried 24 hours ago. <laughs> so that, that happens, but you don't ever, add, you have a, a safe place to go back to called the Lordship of Jesus, where I'm no longer seeking my kingdom, I'm no longer putting my trust in other things, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, all of these things are added to me. I know I'm good, I'm in good hands, even if bad stuff happens, I know God is with me. And I can trust in Him and I can proclaim His truth, His reality over my situation, and follow Him into His plan for me. I hope that makes sense. 20 minutes to go his, do His the fact that he came, that he died, and that he resurrected. But I'm going to hand it over to um, Minda and Anna, if you could come on up. Anna is going to share with us a little bit about this ascended Jesus who is now... In fact, why don't we just... That's cool. Why don't we just... Are you ready to go? Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, go for it. Okay. This is my first time to ever use a laptop or anything electronical to preach from. I'm like old school. I would use papers. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I'm so glad we're family, right? But this is a thing that has been stirring in my heart. Jesus has been saying to me recently, too, to understand that power that Paul was just sharing with us about. We have to understand who he is now. The resurrected Jesus, who is that? And so I would like us to turn to Revelation 1, and we're going to look at some different verses throughout Revelation 1. Starting in verses 1 through 3, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, 
And yes, Lord, this is what we pray, as Paul even said, give us a revelation of who you are, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Jesus wants to reveal to his servants the truth about himself and what is to come. And we are those servants. He is talking to you and me. And John says that we will be blessed if we get a hold of it. And then continuing on in verse 5, it says, To him who loved us, just what Paul was saying, to him who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So let's think about this a moment. How much Jesus loves us that he shed his own blood to forgive our sins and to make us kings and priests to his father. And it's so important that we get a revelation of who he is now because we are kings and priests under this king, in this kingdom. So what does the resurrected Jesus look like? Let's continue on in verse 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded with a chest, with, his, with a band. His head and his hair were white like snow, as white as wool. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth a two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its full strength. This is a picture of Jesus now, the resurrected Jesus, who has a garment down to his feet, white hair, his eyes are a flame of fire, piercing and powerful. His feet are brass, strong and solid. His voice is like the sound of many waters. If any of you have been to Niagara Falls, you know you can have somebody standing right next to you, but the water is so powerful, they can barely hear you. That is the voice of our Jesus. His mouth is a two-edged sword. It's a weapon of war, of power. And his countenance is like the sun in its full strength. We know in the natural, we can't even look at the sun in its full strength. It will physically 
blind us. It can damage our eyes. Yet this is our Jesus, that brightness. And how did John respond to this? Let's think about this for a minute. John was probably Jesus' best friend when he was on the earth. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He knew Jesus. But yet, how did he respond when he saw the resurrected Jesus? It says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. The resurrected Jesus was so overwhelming, so powerful, so majestic, that even the person, the human being closest to Jesus, couldn't handle it. And in verse 17 and 18, then again, showing even though Jesus is this powerful, mighty God, what does he do? He reaches down in that love, right? Said, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first, I am the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I live forevermore. I have the keys, Woo! I love this part, Hades and death. Again, what Paul was saying, there is nothing more powerful than our Jesus. He lives forevermore. He holds the keys of Hades. He holds the key of death. Death has no power over us. And then just one more place in Revelation 19, where we get a great picture, a clear picture of our resurrected Jesus. So if you want to go there, we're going to read Revelation 19, 11 through 16. It says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had written that no one, a name that no one could know except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fi fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a two-edged sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with an iron rod. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh was written, the, was written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Woo! This is our Jesus, and this is his kingdom. And this is why it's so important we get a clear understanding, because when we do, we understand what we pray in the name of Jesus Every demon in hell has to bow to that name, what Paul was talking about. When Paul tells us that we are ambassadors of Christ, he's talking about this Jesus. This is the Jesus we're representing on this earth. This is the authority he has, that king has given us to walk out in this earth. And that's why we don't get worried about all these current events and all this da-da-da-da-da. Why? Because he has, over, he has overcome the world. And like we read in the beginning in Revelation 1-6, we have been made kings 
and priests in this kingdom under this king. That's got to get you guys excited, huh? And that, like Paul was saying, he paid the ultimate price so that we would rise up and take our position in him and in his kingdom. So Paul's going to come now, and we're going to have communion, and he's going to share, and 